This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Becoming a quality parent doesn't happen by accident or coincidence. It necessitates conscious awareness and intentional effort. Working a program of recovery is among the greatest gifts a parent can give his or her child. It's also a frequently underappreciated and underutilized asset in terms of how recovering people can approach parenting. When practiced, the principles of recovery not only improve the well-being and functioning of a person in recovery, but can also facilitate healthy, quality parenting in ways that better meet the needs of children and their parents. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking about parenting in recovery. Now, we've talked about parenting and recovery a little bit in other shows, but this one has a different perspective because we're going to be incorporating some of the practice of mindfulness and 12-step oriented recovery, along with elements of psychological theory, contemporary counseling, and neuroscience. And my guest to help us through all this is a writer and psychotherapist who is also in long-term recovery himself. So he's got quite a lot to say about every aspect of this. I'm Armin Brat, and we'll start talking about mindful parenting and recovery when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Did you know 26 million Americans have kidney disease and most don't know it? Did you know understanding your risk of kidney disease may be the first step in treating it? Visit the National Kidney Foundation at kidney.org. Now you know. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Dan Major, who's the author of Roots and Wings, Mindful Parenting in Recovery. And if you're looking for it, by the way, Major is M-A-G-E-R. Dan, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Armin. Thanks for having me on. So let's have you start with defining what recovery means, or at least the way that you're using it, because recovery, I think... There could be all sorts of things you're recovering from, whether it's an addiction or alcoholism or some kind of trauma in your past. How do you define recovery? That's such an important question, and it really frames our discussion uh, in a way that's helpful and comprehensive insofar as most classic um, interpretations of recovery related to various forms of, of addiction. You know, initially, this is this is, relates more specifically to addiction to alcohol and or other mood and mind-altering substances. But, you know, as, as, as we know, uh, recently in, in the last two years, the scope of addiction has been broadened to include a variety of different things as it relates to different forms of food, including sugar, different activities, gambling, which is now defined as, a, as an addictive disorder in the Diagnostic and Statistic uh, Manual of Mental Disorders, which is the Bible for, for diagnosing uh, addiction and other mental health challenges, um, working out and, and working and, and uh, 
uh, one's relationship with digital technology and screen media, smartphones, and 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 and, and so forth, uh, can all, depending upon your perspective, when they're taken to extreme levels of participation, uh, and and involve obsessive thinking and compulsive acting can be considered potentially forms of addiction. So when, when I speak of, of recovery, you know, most specifically in the book, it relates to recovery from addiction related to alcohol and other drugs. However, it's not just confined to that insofar as my take on recovery is that it's a broad-based process of ongoing learning, growth, and healing. And that can relate to a very wide variety of experiences, including, as you mentioned, recovery recovery from from trauma. Addiction is inherently limiting in the ways that people end up relating to themselves, to other people, and to the world. And recovery is the opposite of that. Okay. So how do you, I I guess it it doesn't make a difference really whether there's some sort of hierarchy of which types of addictions you're, you're recovering from. There aren't any necessarily that are, are more worthy of discussion than others, but how do you, as a, as an individual begin to assess what it is you need to recover from? I think it begins with taking a look at where our lives are more limited, where there are areas of dissatisfaction or discontent, and where we are experiencing various kinds of challenges or, or, or problems, and, and beginning to identify, okay, well, what is what is this challenge, this limitation, this problem area about? And kind of breaking it down into its component parts, and then taking a look at the, at from that from that uh, position at what sorts of directions, activities, learning, skill development will be helpful in terms of ameliorating those challenges, broadening one's perspective, providing more access to possibility and flexibility in responding to life and its, mm-hmm. and its uh, challenges in more healthy and skillful ways. Yeah. So the other, just still staying with the title of the book for just a second, the other word that I think needs to be defined is is mindfulness. And we've, we've talked about that on the show a lot from a variety of different perspectives, whether it's mindful eating to other kinds of mindfulness, just general mindfulness. But how, how are you using the word mindfulness relative to recovery? Well, you know, mind, mindfulness, uh, as, as you know, you've suggested, uh, Armin, is, you know, very much in mainstream culture in the U.S. at this point, and, and uh, it's, it's been discussed and applied to a variety of, of different settings. And, you know, the way I use it is that it's, it represents an approach to living intentionally and with conscious, present-centered awareness in general, but it also includes 
a set of specific practices that uh, that you know you mentioned mindful eating that is a mindfulness practice intentional breathing is a mindfulness practice meditation in in a variety of forms involves mindfulness because the idea is to become increasingly consciously aware of our thoughts so that so that uh, our thoughts don't dictate our behavior in an automatic unconscious way so mindfulness as it relates to both recovery and parenting involves the conscious awareness of the stories that our thoughts tell us so that we can evaluate their their merit uh, set them aside when they have no relevance or helpful bearing on the on the present circumstance uh, be not just aware of, but allow ourselves to feel the emotions that we experience, including challenging, difficult, uncomfortable emotions Mm -hmm. without having to act out on them, to discharge them in ways that can create problems or add to problems in our lives, certainly including with with our kids, because anyone who's a parent knows that kids can be the world's best advertisements for birth control. Now, they can be so challenging and so frustrating just doing what comes naturally to them and what's normal to them at whatever ages they are. And, and parents need, in, in order to deal with, with them in a healthy and fundamentally skillful way, we need to be intentional in knowing what buttons their behaviors push and being able to decide in a very clear and informed way how we want to act in response to how our kids are, as opposed to, say, how we reacted when we were kids, when we were young, or how our parents reacted with us, which tends to become the default way of responding to our own kids. So how does this all fit together then? So you've got you've got the recovery part, we've got the mindfulness part, and then it seems like just to be mindful in your own recovery is going to be a big enough chore. How does the, the how does this all affect your parenting and fit into your parenting? Well, it, it fits it fits together quite elegantly, actually. And and to to me, and and one of the reasons why I ended up writing this particular book and and you know studying it and doing research on it was was related to how, how it came together for me in my own practice of, of personal recovery and, and, and parenting of, of my children. When I, when I uh, came into recovery, my kids were 19 and 14, respectively. They're, uh, they're 30 and 26 now. I have no idea how it came to pass that I have kids that are, that are full-grown adults at this point. But, uh, but really, many of, the, many of the practices, including those related to mindfulness, that help people sustain recovery from addiction, generalize to other essential areas of life, in, including parenting, in that they're really both processes of learning and growth 
and they have the potential to be healing. When we parent in ways that are healthy and skillful, we heal ourselves and the wounds that we experienced as kids growing up and how we were parented uh, also. You know, parenting and recovery, they both in, involve significant losses as well as, as life-transformative gains. And it really, so much, so much about, about uh, life, regardless of what, air, what content area we're talking about, is really a function of bringing conscious awareness to bear so mm-hmm. we can select yeah. how we want to respond to whatever the circumstance is as opposed to operating on kind of an automatic pilot uh, modus operandi right. which is which is reflexive and and so so there are really but Dan, Dan Dan hold on just a second in those two areas. Hold, hold on a second we've got to take a quick break here talking with Dan Major who's the author of Roots and Wings Mindful Parenting and Recovery we're going to take a quick break when we come back we'll keep talking to Dan about exactly that uh, mindful parenting and recovery I'm Armin Broad and you're listening to Positive Parenting Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Dan Major, who is the author of Roots and Wings, Mindful Parenting and Recovery. And I want to have you talk a little bit about some of the, the specifics about how whatever it is that you're in recovery from can affect your, your parenting without the mindfulness part of it. I mean, what are, what are the kinds of things that can, that can recovery, how can, how can recovery negatively impact your parenting experience? And your kids' experience well, of being parented. And that's that's another excellent question, Armin. Um, sometimes they are these two important areas of life. They're viewed as being in conflict. And in twelve-step uh, oriented recovery programs, one of the one of the sayings, one of the uh, one of the uh, axioms, is that one's recovery has to come first, uh, has to be a higher priority than everything else in one's, in one's life because without, without remaining abstinent, without, without staying on the path of recovery, then whatever else has in, in, our, in our lives uh, is then at, at risk. And some people interpret that very rigidly along the lines of, well, so I have to spend the majority of my time and my energy focused very directly on my recovery. And when that happens, there's less parental time, energy, and emotional availability for kids. And they can not just be left out, but there can be a certain degree of neglect in the, in the process. Um, and, you know, an, another aspect of it is that Sometimes parents will feel deep pools of guilt and shame related to how they may have treated their kids or, or neglected them prior, you know, d- well, during their active addiction, prior to coming into recovery. Um, and and sometimes, sometimes that guilt and shame can be debilitating, and sometimes it can result in, in overcompensation and kind of move parents towards being 
overly accommodating, overly permissive, and kind of codependent and, and reluctant to tell to set set and enforce limits with their kids and simply say no, you know, because they want to give them all of the things that that they weren't available to give them previously in in some cases. And you know, again, when mindfulness is brought to bear in connection with all of these issues, mm-hmm. it gives parents the opportunity to to balance the time and energy they spend on their recovery more specifically with their physical and emotional availability to their kids. Uh, how, to, does, can, how does but, uh, forgiveness fit in here? Ask, because that's going to be part of the whole process before you can get back to parenting in an effective way. There probably has to be some sort of process of the kids forgiving the parent who's in recovery for the things that you've just been talking about, the things that you did that you wish you wouldn't have done or that you didn't do that you wish you would have done? Well, it's you know, the type of relationship that a parent has with their child or with their children is certainly a variable in connection with that. But forgiveness, although although it's ideal and it certainly makes things easier from an emotional perspective, is is often very much a process and ra- rather than a one-time event and it, and it doesn't it nothing has to wait until until uh, there's a form of formal forgiveness basically parents can begin the process of correcting their relationship with their kids of repairing it uh, if you will, and at any moment in time. And it starts with simply being aware of the need to be there for them in a variety of ways, uh, including with their physical and emotional presence, their their avail- availability to, and, and often, you know, depending upon where kids are at, they're going to be angry. And they're they're not going to be very receptive to it, uh, and that's that's okay. Mindfulness uh, can can be applied to this as it relates to the awareness that kids are entitled to have their own reactions, and that trying to control or manipulate those actions or wait until the kids are going to be receptive until parents begin to do that which is the right thing by their kids, that which is healthy and skillful from a parenting perspective, it, you know, there, there doesn't have to be any, any delay there. Even mm-hmm. though for parents, and I know this from my own personal experience, it can be excruciatingly painful to want to be forgiven yeah. and have that being withheld or taking much more time than we would than we would like it to. It seems like but, you have to have some element of forgiveness for yourself first though. Yes, that's that that is absolutely critical and and self-compassion, self-forgiveness is also a mindfulness practice in and of itself. The, the you know the definition of forgiveness that uh, that I especially like 
is one that I that I, I mention in Roots and Wings, but I became familiar with it probably about 12 or 13 years ago, and it's a paraphrase of something I heard from a well-known psychologist named John Friel, and what he said is that forgiveness is the willingness to give up all hope for a better past. A better past? It's really an exquisite and wonderful way of, of, ex, of expressing that, that the past, you know, the past is as good as it's ever going to get. And uh, unless, unless someone learns how to change the past, in which case I hope they'll share that secret with me, um, it, it is what it is, and there's nothing we can do about what happened then, what we can influence, what we can make a positive and healthy difference in is what we do going forward from right here and right now. And that's, that applies in many ways to our kids and yeah. our relationships. So them. we only have just about um, a minute left or so. And tell us a little bit about how you can start this process of mindful parenting. It has to do with with um, learning, learning how to recognize and observe our own thoughts first and foremost, because they tell us all of these stories, many of which have nothing to do with our current circumstances. So, and and becoming conscious of and, and consciously aware of our own experience. You know, again, our, our thoughts, our emotions physical sensations, learning how to accept them without judgment, paying attention with intention to be able to observe and accept the ongoing unfolding of our experience on those levels, thoughts, emotions, physical sensations, without becoming over-identified with or attached to them so that they determine our experience, that, that we think we are our thoughts, or just because we think something, that it's inherently true. Um, and uh, as, and then, then we can decide, well, okay, how do I want to respond to this particular circumstance? I'm, I'm the witness of my thoughts. I'm not my thoughts, and I can be present with and go through whatever difficult, challenging feelings I may have including feelings of guilt and shame vis-a-vis my, my previous parenting. And yet I can, I can separate that from how I am with my children right here and right now and do something more healthy and more skillful to repair some of those rifts. I've been talking with Dan Major, it's M-A-G-E-R, who's the author of Roots and Wings, Mindful Parenting and Recovery. Dan, thanks very much. Thank you so much, Armin. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and your audience today. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for a Parents at Play segment. If you've never been to Philadelphia, you need to add it to your list of must-visit cities. 
Famous as the city of brotherly love, Philly seamlessly blends the historic, the modern, and everything in between. The locals are friendly, the city itself is wonderful to explore on foot, and the subway bus system, called SEPTA, is easy to navigate. On our visit, we spent some time on the beaten track, but also found plenty of time to get off it. Here are some of our recommendations. For more or to plan your trip, definitely check out Visit Philadelphia at visitphilly.com. The Franklin Institute. This science museum is amazing and has something for everyone in your family. You'll find hands-on exhibits where you can learn about gears, power, physics, and static electricity, a heart that's big enough to walk through, virtual reality immersive experiences, an escape room, a planetarium, and even some look-but-don't-touch marvels, including our absolute favorite, the Maillardet Automaton, a fascinating machine that was the inspiration for the movie Hugo and the book it's based on, The Invention of Hugo Cabret. Arrive early and plan to spend most of the day there. You can get information at fi.edu. The Muter Museum of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia. This remarkable collection of medical oddities includes a slice of Albert Einstein's brain, wax models of every conceivable disease, a death cast of the original Siamese twins Chang and Eng, and preserved specimens of two-headed babies and a variety of diseased or deformed body parts. There's also a 2,374-piece collection of objects removed from the airways and digestive tracts of Philadelphia's own Dr. Chevalier Jackson. This includes pins, nails, coins, toys, wire, and more. You can get more information at MuterMuseum.com. Pizza Brain. This smallish, off-the-beaten-track pizza place is also the home of the world's largest collection of pizza-related items, and they've got the Guinness World Record to prove it. You'll find articles on the history of pizza in the United States, record albums, ads, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles action figures, pizza-themed games, and even a Starship Enterprise pizza cutter. More information at pizzabrain.org. Philadelphia's Magic Gardens. Isaiah Zagar has been making his own brand of whimsical, eclectic, colorful, and wildly creative mosaic art in Philly since the late 1960s. Using handmade tiles, broken mirrors, bottles, bowls, figurines, and other materials, he decorates both the inside and outside of his creations. This installation covers half a city block and includes an outdoor labyrinth that's fascinating. More information at phillymagicgardens.org. Independence National Historic Park. There's a lot of history in Philadelphia, including Independence Hall, where the Declaration of Independence was adopted, and the Constitution signed, and the Liberty Bell Center, which houses the famous Cracked Bell and a nice exhibit on the not-always-pleasant history of liberty in the United States. More information at nps.gov inde. Bury the Hatchet. Imagine darts, but with axes. It may sound a little intimidating, but it's easy to learn and lots of fun. Your experience starts with a lesson in the basics of throwing and scoring, and it's followed by some friendly games. An instructor will be with your group for the whole visit to keep score and, most importantly, to keep everyone safe. For ages 14 and up, check out burythehatchet.com 
slash axe-throwing-philadelphia. The Rocky Steps and Statue If you've seen the Rocky movies, you no doubt remember the stairs that Rocky triumphantly runs up to let us know that he's in tip-top shape and ready to meet Apollo Creed. If you don't feel like running up all 72 steps, you can take a picture in front of the Rocky statue at the bottom. The Reading Terminal Market At some point on your trip, you're going to want to eat, and this repurposed train station has every type of food from Amish to Ziti. Don't forget the marzipan, my personal favorite. Find out more information at ReadingTerminalMarket.org. You can get reviews of a lot more toys and games and locations and all sorts of fantastic things to do with your kids at our website, parentsatplay.com. We'll be back next week with another show for you. But don't go yet because you know there's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. In 1977, in Johannesburg, South Africa, an eight-year-old boy picked up the game of golf from his father. By the age of nine, he was already outplaying him. The odds of that same boy then making it to the U.S. and European pro golf tours? One in seven million. The odds of the Big Easy winning the Open Championship once and the U.S. Open Championship twice? One in 780 million. The odds of this professional golfer having a child diagnosed with autism? One in 110. Ernie Else encourages you to learn the signs of autism at AutismSpeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Autism Speaks. It's time to listen. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brat from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's positive parenting show. I'm Armin Brat, the founder of MrDad.com. Thanks for staying with us. A miraculous alchemy occurs when one person reads to another, transforming the simple stuff of a book, a voice, and a bit of time into complex and powerful fuel for the heart, brain, and imagination. In this part of today's show, we're going to be speaking with an author of a new book on reading aloud, and she's going to take the latest neuroscience and behavioral research and literature and explain to us the dazzling cognitive and social-emotional benefits that await children, whatever their class, nationality, or family background. But it's not just about bedtime stories for little kids. Reading aloud consoles, uplifts, and invigorates at every age, deepening the intellectual lives and emotional well-being of teenagers and adults, too. My guest argues that the ancient practice of reading aloud is a fast-working antidote to the fractured attention spans, atomized families, and unfulfilling ephemera of the tech era, and it's going to help to replenish what our devices are leeching away. For everyone, reading aloud engages the mind in complex narratives. For children, it's an irreplaceable gift that builds vocabulary, fosters imagination, and kindles a lifelong appreciation of language, 
stories, and pictures. And it all starts right after this. I put out way too much trash to think about recycling. I just don't get it. Some things are very obvious, Maria. Learn the difference between trash and recycling and more on our website, yougottobekidding.org. Visit yougottobekidding.org today. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Braun, and my guest for this part of today's show is Megan Cox Gurdon, who's the author of The Enchanted Hour, The Miraculous Power of Reading Aloud in the Age of Distraction. Megan, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. So, do you think that people have stopped reading aloud to kids? Well, we know certain things. We know that the number of parents who read to their very small children babies and toddlers, is actually seems to be slowly ticking up. But we know also that uh, when kids are able to read to themselves or when they reach about the age of five, that in most families, even in the families where, you know, reading has been part of the, let's say, evening routine, uh, the reading starts to die away. And by the time children are 9, 10, 11, it's vanishingly rare in most households. So it's, 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 uh, it's something that, uh, you know, is really well worth revisiting as a, both a wonderful way to kind of build the family and also a way to build, you know, build children's cognitive and emotional capacities at a time when, you know, we have our technology dragging us away um, from those good things. Well, talk a little bit about some of the benefits that come from, from reading aloud. I mean, I think a lot of people who have listened to the show have heard me go on and on about this and have read my columns, and I talk about the benefits and, and how people are exposed to more more language and they do better in school and, and a lot of things. But why don't you summarize some of the benefits for us? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, it's, you, you know probably from, you know, your reading and maybe your personal experience. I know from my personal experience and now my research uh, the truth of what the read-aloud time, according to social scientists, is one of the most important indicators of a child's prospects in life, which is kind of an extraordinary thing. But here's what it does. It, it boosts co- children's cognitive development. Uh, it improves their ability to focus. It fosters social and emotional development, strengthens you know, their emotional connections with the people who are reading to them in their own family, help it, you know, children learn to uh, something called theory of mind, which is the idea that other people who are separate from them, this is when they're very small, that other people have, you know, their own emotions and their own uh, responses to things and that we ourselves can influence other people's emotions. All of this, you know, doesn't necessarily come automatically to every child. So picture books, um, as I say in my book, are a way of turbocharging child development in those early crucial years when children's brains are growing like mad. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's just the beginning of it. In fact, there are, mm-hmm. you know, consequences uh, throughout life. You know, I want to take a look at this from the other side, though, because I think that it, it, sometimes it's hard for people to quite grasp something if you only look at what, what benefits something has. So what happens if kids don't get read to? Yeah, so children who do not get read to are at a, a really serious and profound disadvantage, uh, certainly when they go to school. And over the years, that disadvantage tends to to increase because because of the corresponding advantage for children who have had what you alluded to before this extraordinary um, the, the extraordinary sort of uh, uh, what's the metaphor sort of um, 
you know, enormous amount of language that children get when, when, when books are read to them. You know, children really need to hear, to, to develop uh, fluency, to develop a broad vocabulary. You know, the more words they hear spoken to them, the better. And, uh, and what, I mean, it, kind of extraordinarily, you could imagine that, say, um, any picture book, you know, how, how many words are in a picture book, right? They're 32 pages, maybe, you know, a, some number of words, but how consequential could it really be? Well, this has been studied, and a child who reads just or has a parent read just two picture books a day, which is maybe a time sink of five minutes, that child in the course of a year hears 438,000 words of text, which is quite <laughs> extraordinary. So you imagine that you, you don't read just for five minutes a day. You read for an hour a day if you can, an enchanted hour, as I call it. Uh, that is just a, just a phenomenal amount of language, not just words, but, uh, you know, syntax and grammar and words that sort of open up the world to children. Mm. You know, I've always thought, and I, I want to talk to you a little bit in, in much more detail about how exactly you read to kids, because there are different theories about that and different approaches. But for me, one of the most important things was when reading to the kids is not just the language that I was directing at them by reading the book, but the discussions that we no, would have, and right. and yeah. well, what do you what do you think the bunny's going to do? And why? Look at which which one of these guys has two eyes, or find the blue things, or and the, and then when they begin to respond and they begin to ask questions, they're directing a lot of the conversation. So it's not just the the incoming one way transmission of vocabulary no, or, or words. Exactly right. It's the give and take that really I yeah. You know, that yeah. and the fact that just having them on your lap or snuggled up next to you under a blanket is just so sweet. Just well, it is sweet, you know. and and that feeling that you get, you know, when you when you, you know at the end of a hard day and you finally got people's teeth brushed or whatever, and you sit down and oh, and there's that feeling of sort of release and relaxation with the reading time. You know, that's not just uh, a, a kind of you know an illusion. That there's there's good physio physiological. Uh, science behind it. It's essentially chemistry. You know, sitting down with a child and a book actually reduces feelings of stress and the stress hormone cortisol in both parent and child, and it increases the bonding hormone oxytocin. So we're really, you know, we're not just having a nice time together. We're actually building our relationship. And, and the conversations that you described are crucial. That's exactly right. And one of the reasons I argue for the picture book and, and for reading in general as a kind of antidote to the, some of the effects of technology on family life, is that very thing, that, that interacting with a book gives you not only the story, the pictures, the language that's in the book, but foments all this other conversation and exchange, which is just absolutely important for children as they learn to navigate the world and also their own interior lives. You know, what really I find difficult about this is that in in some ways it, it it seems to exaggerate the class differences and other kinds of differences between various populations because it seems like the people who are doing it continue to do it and the people who are not doing it don't do it and so another generation of kids grows up i mean i i remember having these thoughts when my when my older two were very little we lived right across the street from a girl who would sometimes babysit for my kids. And I, I thought after a while when I tried to help her with the paper that she was writing in high school, this this girl was, was functionally illiterate. And I thought, my kids at the ages of two and five 
are set for life because mm-hmm. I read to them and, and their mother reads to them and they've got books in the house and, and there were no books in, in this uh, girl across the street's house. And I thought, it's, she's she's hampered for her whole life probably. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm unfor- I mean, do you know what I mean? It just it seems oh, it do, seems absolutely. tragic in in a way that that in no, in... it does. It absolutely does. And and you know that's one of. I mean, I'll say you know when it, when I talked about writing this book, one of the things my editor said was, you know, the the truth of the matter is, you know, there are lots of parents who will just embrace this message because it validates what they're already doing. And in fact, you know, I was thrilled to find how much you know proof there is of the good of of what what I was doing, what you were doing with your children. Um, and the and the and the painful truth is that it's harder to get through to families that are not you know already kind of tuned into literacy yeah. or you know that kind of thing. I think you know one of one of one of my goals, one of my great ambitions, though, is to help uh, you know to nudge the needle to the degree that we, as much as possible, normalize reading aloud as a really lovely thing to do. Um, I mean, there are all sorts of wonderful philanthropic outfits that are trying to spread the message, I and mean, there's just this enormous push going on because. You know, we can, to the very point you, that you described, you know, there is this bifurcation in a way between the children of the country. And some are, some are smoothly locking into the education system and some are being left behind. But, the, but here's the other painful fact about it, of course, is that when they really need it is when they're tiny. They need, you, yeah. know, uh, you know, we need to get to, and of course there are groups like Reach Out and Read who are, uh, you know, operating by getting into pedi- pediatric practices and hospitals and giving books to parents right there, you know, at the point of arrival and when children come in for their shots and their checkups and things. And, and you know, again, to try to, to normalize this. To, and, 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 of course, you and I as practitioners know it's actually one of, the, one, of the, one of the greatest things you can do with children, and it's one of the easiest things because they, they love stories and they love our attention. And it's, uh, it's, it's got all these, you know, Oh, I don't know, all these profound advantages. And the only real sacrifice you have to make as a parent is a bit of time. And, I, you know, some people have said to me, well, what about parents? They're so busy. We all have so much to do. We're all trying to get things right. And, boy, do I understand that. I mean, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, but, you know, in some ways, it's the busiest families that have the most to gain from this. That's another yeah, part exactly. of the message I want to try and get out. Because, you know, if you have limited time with your child, if you have limited attention to, to give to your child... This is one of the most productive ways to spend your time together. Talking with Megan Gurdon, who's the author of The Enchanted Hour, The Miraculous Power of Reading Aloud in the Age of Distraction. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Megan. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brock, talking with Megan Cox Gurdon, who's the author of The Enchanted Hour, The Miraculous Power of Reading Aloud in the Age of Distraction. I want to get back to something we were just touching on before, which is that in in many ways, the people who are already doing this are, or maybe we'll put it a different way, the people who are going to read the book are people who are already doing this. How do you reach the people who are not doing it? I mean, how do well, how do I, we get how do we get them? And you were talking about hospital programs and, and giving out books, but I mean, there there are families I know, Im- immigrant families, for example, where somebody that the parents may not 
may not speak the English, or they may not feel comfortable reading. They may have difficulties reading or something like that, and I think a lot of people would stop. But how do we make this something that everybody does? Well, you know, I mean, I guess how do we how do we do how do we do how do we achieve any kind of social change, right? We push, and we talk, and we try to inspire. Um, you know, I mentioned the philanthropic organization Reach Out and Read. Um, and there are there are book charities. There's another operation called Read Aloud 15 Minutes uh, that is trying very hard to. They're putting out public service uh, public service ads. They're very funny, very clever ones, um, just to sort of saturate the market with this idea that this is what you do when you bring home a baby, you sit with the baby and read. And I, you know, I do think even uh, let's say a book like mine uh, is picked up by families that are more you know already committed to this idea, I have actually already seen, um, you know, I've been, people have called me and contacted me, how can I help with others? You know, how can I go out into the community and do more with others? So, you know, I think the fact, Armin, that you and I are having this conversation now is, is we are doing our bit to nudge the needle, you know, just to, one, one of the extraordinary things I've found is um, people who said, oh, I, I, I knew you do. I knew you read to babies, but I never imagined that you would read to children who could read to themselves, or that you would read to teenagers. Or this is another part of the book. You know, our, the only important family dynamic is not just parents and young children; it's also parents and older parents. You know, with our elders, reading together is something that actually immeasurably er- enriches the people who participate in it, and that's yeah. true up and yeah. down the age spectrum. Oh, and, and I'll tell you, I'll give you some examples, I think, of, of additional things that I would suggest, and I know you, you've talked about a lot of these in the books, but, I mean, I get a lot of kids' books to review, and donating those to local charities or local schools for after-school programs, because a lot of times, particularly in inner-city programs or, or low-income areas, they just may not have a budget for books, and so yeah. doing that is a good thing, and I had... Uh, when my, my daughter was, my oldest one was about 12, she was getting ready for her bat mitzvah, and we were looking for some charitable projects for her to do, and so the two of us went to volunteer to read to kids at a school. That's and that, that kind of thing is something that, that those, an, answering the questions that you said people were asking you about, how what can I do to help out? It's that kind of thing. Uh, you can give them the skills, give them the resources, and, and actually read to them, and, and it just makes, it, it made a big difference. Yeah, you know, up, there's a wonderful outfit up in uh, Tompkins County, New York, uh, the Family Reading Partnership. Uh, they're operating principally out of Ithaca, but they serve the whole county. And um, and they get kids from Cornell. Actually, it's the, um, I'm going to get this wrong, it's the lacrosse team. Uh, the lacrosse team, they put on funny costumes, and they go to schools, and they read to children. You know, it's just, it's absolutely darling. And uh, and it's and it's really good for the for the, you know, the young adults as well. They are. They step out of their college personas and wear. Well, the day I was there, they were wearing fish costumes. It looked preposterous, but I think that was the freshmen had to wear the fish fish costumes. But um, you know, again, it, it it was they. You know, they go into the classrooms. They lead read to children, and it's um, was one of those wonderful instances where different generations mix. You know, we just don't do that much of that in this country, and um, it's as I said before, just very very enriching for both sides. Um, to to encounter one another in a story. Yeah, and and I think there, there's something else that I just would would throw out there for people who are listening, particularly on the AFN stations that the, that this is on, is that one of the best ways I've found for service members who are being deployed overseas to stay connected to their families is to record themselves. You can do it video or audio, reading stories to their kids, 
and to have those have the the, the parent who's at home play those recordings or the videos. It's yeah, the, there are some work. great organizations for uh, United Through Reading is one of them. Exactly, um, yeah. That yeah. Does, does a lot of that stuff, and it's uh, it, it's just terrific stuff. So, how, um, Megan, how how do you suggest that you do it? If, if you're somebody who's new to reading, maybe somebody's listening who's just had a baby and they really hadn't thought about it, what do you need? Is there a particular environment or, or what? How do you set it up? Yeah, you know, I think, I think that a certain amount of trial and error is probably a good idea. Um, I always found, uh, you know, I have five children, and I started reading. It was basically the only thing I knew to do with them when I first had my first child. I didn't grow up, you know, around other children. I didn't really know how to be with babies. For me, reading was a kind of, it was reading picture books taught me how to be a mother, I think, actually. It gave me uh, some quiet time where I knew I, I could read, and I, um, I, I didn't know how to talk to a baby, you know, and, and picture books helped do that. So for me, it was always in the evenings. And I, I, what I suggest is that people pick a time, and it could be at breakfast when the baby's in the high chair, or it could be, you know, at nap, one of the various nap times you have if it's a small child. And just give it, you know, give it five or ten minutes the first day. And don't, I think, you know, we, we, all, we all try hard. We all want to get it right. Um, I don't want anybody ever to beat themselves up about this, you know. It's just, it's just a positive thing. Start whenever you can. Just start for five or ten minutes the first day and just try and do it again, this, you know, the next day at the same time. And, uh, you know, if the children are a bit older and it feels a little awkward, well, that's okay, you know. You start small. You read uh, a poem or a picture book or something you have to read for school and, do it at the same time, do it the next day. And, uh, you know, it is my firm belief that when people get a taste of this, having overcome maybe the momentary, you know, weirdness of starting to do it, 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 it the time rapidly becomes not a sacrifice but a, a benefit and a treasure. Can you talk about the difference between reading and just telling a story? Well, there are, I mean, both are wonderful, right? I mean, it's, you know, there are two different ways of, of experiencing things. What a child gets when you tell a story is, is, is fantastic. They get your full attention. They get your thoughts. They can watch your face as you're telling the story, and that's very, very helpful for them as they learn to acquire language and also, you know, emotional, uh, you know, development and awareness. Um, when you read a story with them, what we know, especially if it's a picture book, we know from the science that a child's brain lights up. I'm told neurologists say we're not supposed to use that phrase, but since I'm a layman, I'll use it. Um, the, the different domains of the brain are all engaged when we read a picture book to a child. It's, in this way, one of the most uh, consequential things we can do because all sorts of different capacities like uh, the semantic and the, the language development and the processing of visual, visual stimuli and memory and introspection and skill refinement and creativity, all these different domains come to bear when a child is sitting quietly with a parent or adult and that uh, the, you know, the reader is bringing the story into the air, as it were, through the, with the voice, mm -hmm. right, so the child can hear it in the ears. And the child has, has time to look at the pictures that aren't jumping around, you know, like a video would do. Just still pictures and the, and, the, and the gentle process gives, you know, the introspection that a small child has is not necessarily something very, um, you know, very, very involved or refined. It may be just something as simple as thinking, oh, Curious George has a balloon. I had a balloon, you know. It just, but, but even when that, little, that kind of thought takes place, that kind of uh, reflecting on what a child is seeing in a book, uh, 
that's very engaging for their mind. Um, with, I, I understand that the same, you know, the same studies that, that found this, done in Cincinnati, by the way, at the Children's Hospital there, uh, that found that picture books are so productive, found that when a small child is listening to a story, you know, their, brains, their brain domains are engaged, but not to the same degree. So it, the visual seems really to help them. So are the things you would suggest that people not do when reading? Uh, <laughs> yes. I would say do not insist that a child sit still. Yeah. yeah. Do not insist that the child sit on your lap. Uh, do not insist that the child have its hand, or her hands empty. Uh, you know, uh, children are people, right? We all have different preferences. Some children get very impatient if there's a lot of landscape description. I had one of those. Uh, some children really enjoy listening while fiddling with their fingers, like building a Lego or something like that. So I think, you know, giving them a certain amount of freedom and just, just you know, being brave enough to sort of stick with the reading, even if your audience doesn't seem absolutely, you know, riveted to your every word, um, is a good way to make space for everybody, you know? Yeah, I think watching the cues, too, is very important. If, if the kid seems completely unhappy with what you're reading or completely distracted, maybe continue another time. Yeah, or, or, or swap books. You know, I, I think for a lot of us yeah. as adults, it, a lot of us, it took us a long time to realize that we don't absolutely have to finish every book we started. I, it took me, I probably learned that last year. You know, I used to feel always I was obliged to finish a book if I'd started it. But, but this isn't true. And, and, and that's where the sort of experimental, kind of improvisational nature of reading uh, can be so wonderful because you, you begin to learn what your children like. Uh, you learn what you like, too. And there are some books as a parent, you know, you would rather put in the fireplace than ever read again. Um, uh, but, you know, that's maybe maybe something worth suppressing in oneself. Just let the children hear, hear the stories they want to hear. Yeah. Um, there's some, one other thing I wanted to suggest, and that is uh, I think you can't uh, overestimate the degree to which older children enjoy hearing picture books as well. Um, and so with, especially with a mixed group of children, but even if you just have one, you know, it's worth trying books at, that are pitched at different levels in the same reading session. You know, so so even though Goodnight Moon is, you know, clearly a book for very small children, you know, a five or six or even eight-year-old might enjoy it very much. It might be a, a nostalgic, you know, visit back to the book rather than a first-time encounter. And you read that and you could read, you know, a chapter or two of a chapter book. There are all sorts of... I, I, I just think being as playful and as open as possible just makes it more fun for everybody. I've been talking with Megan Cox Gurdon, who's the author of The Enchanted Hour, The Miraculous Power of Reading Aloud in the Age of Distraction. Megan, thanks so much. Great to have you. Yeah, lovely to be here. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.